This episode contains subject matter and language some might find offensive or inappropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Far removed from the insidious prison camp of Shermek, set the once quiet, quaint town of Zettel, Poland. Located just 91 miles southwest of Minsk, the town of Zettel would be taken by surprise in June of 1941 by an unforeseen betrayal. When Hitler decided rather than remain allies with then-dictator Joseph Stalin, he took his war to the east with one of the largest military campaigns in the history of modern warfare, Operation Barbarossa. This change of fate between the two Axis powers inevitably came to have critical effects on the infiltrated Soviet Union, the trajectory of the war, and the small town of Zettel. Within only a few short months, persecution of the Soviet Jewish population was well underway, with the removal of Jews from their homes and forceful transfers to ghettos that were oftentimes overcrowded and lacking basic human needs. After the 1942 Wannsee Conference, rapid steps began to liquidate all ghettos and systematic steps began to wipe Jewish life from the face of Europe. This operation codenamed the final solution to the European Jewish question, resulted in millions of Jewish deaths as well as millions of deportations to death camps located primarily throughout Poland. It was during the second liquidation of the Zettel Ghetto that the Rabinowitz family, Morris, Miriam, Tanya, and Raquel, undertook an operation of their own, one of great resistance and perhaps even greater risk. They would flee the Zettel Ghetto to hide out in the Bialuasia forest, experiencing great dangers such as typhus, sub-zero winters, food shortages, the constant threat of bombs, Nazi soldiers, and mercenaries who were paid to hunt for Jews. The foursome were eventually liberated by the Red Army in June of 1944, after which they immigrated to the United States. Like the Rabinowitz family experienced, the horrors of the Holocaust and heroic acts of resistance were not limited to the barbed wire walls of concentration camps, but occurred in everyday and typically innocuous locations. From barns to alleyway bunkers, attics and forests, the human spirit was challenged on a daily basis, and danger was in no short supply. Yet where there is danger, there are those that, either set by circumstance or of their own choosing, decide to dig in and stand their ground, however precarious it might be. There is perhaps no better example of this kind of resistance than Godbeck. Unlike Pierre Seal and the Rabinowitz family, who experienced the imperialist invasion of Germany. 
that grew up in the epicenter of its creation, Berlin. Born the son of a Christian mother and a Jewish father, he carried both the title of a Mischling, or half-breed, and homosexual. Yet neither hindered nor hurt Beck's fervent optimism and courageous spirit. Rather, he took on experiences, challenges, and hardships that bound him closer to his identity as a gay Jew. Just as he had been born and lived all of his days thus far in Berlin, he would endure the cataclysm of the Holocaust within that same city. But instead of facing forceful transport or Nazi death camps, he would create an unknown and underground life within the walls of Berlin, consistently aided with help from family, friends, and lovers that would ultimately change the course of many people's lives. His resistance was led non-violently, yet with ferocity and cunning. While Hitler turned his focus on the threat to the East, a formidable foe would be actively undermining his regime right from under his nose. I'm Caleb Franklin, and this is Root and Branch, Gay Survival and the Holocaust. Episode 3, Inside and Underground, Part 1. Gerhard, or as he would later permanently go by, God, was born in 1923 as the second half of an unexpected pair. His mother and father had only been anticipating one child, but after the birth of his sister Margot, he was only minutes behind. His father Heinrich was Jewish and had immigrated to Berlin via Austria. While his mother Hedwig had moved to the city with her Protestant sisters and mother to look for work when she was young. Eventually finding work for Heinrich Beck and Company, mail order firm, Heinrich's employee became his wife and God's mother converted to Judaism, even though his father would have opted for a secular marriage, or one without any religious affiliation. This mixture of Christian and Jewish heritage would become an integral foundation for God. So much so, he pins in his memoir, An Underground Life, Memoirs of a Gay Jew in Nazi Berlin, that this mixture created unity for the family and could have perhaps forged new directions for Central European culture if Hitler had not destroyed it all. 
the good-heartedness and inherited support system of his mixed upbringing would reinforce many facets of God's identity, including his homosexuality. At a time when being gay was already punishable by law and both Jewish and Christian faiths had well-established, staunch stances against what was referred to as a lifestyle choice, Godbeck pins that his coming out occurred in a totally nonchalant fashion. There was no formal or tumultuous event for which he prepared, but rather an unstated knowing, understanding, and acceptance, leaving the young God with no closet from which to come out. This type of fostering and focus on the person God was, rather than one piece of his complicated identity, ties directly to his successful resistance within Berlin. His confidence and charisma were never stifled or called into question in a detrimental way due to his strong family ties and support system. Some might even argue that these familial ties were too supportive. It would be with his uncle that God engaged in his introduction to sexual experiences and his own personal sexual proclivities. And while these kinds of experiences are now denounced globally, later when penning his memoir, God would revel and reminisce of when he made his way to his elevated seat that was Uncle Paul's lap, feeling for the first time a sensational growth that liberated both he and his uncle from their secret desires. Though these encounters never escalated any further, the experiences with his uncle Paul would shape God's philosophy on decision-making, allowing him from a young age to carry himself void of shame, embarrassment, or the dictation of others' opinions or moral gauges. Instead, he would function and resist on his own optimistic terms, oftentimes experiencing poignant lovers juxtaposed with the detrimental destruction and death that came to characterize the Second World War. With God, there was light in almost everything. And just as he had greeted the great loves of his life, he would greet the reality of Jewish and homosexual persecution just as fervently. Although he would be 19 when the mass deportations of Jews became mandatory via the final solution, God began to experience the disconcerting discourse and pointed persecution surrounding Jews in Berlin when he was only 10 years old through the act of othering. Defined by professor of human geography, Jean-Francois Stajsak, othering is the transforming of a difference into otherness so as to create an in-group and an out-group. Throughout the entirety of the Holocaust, the Nazis would utilize many different modes and methods of othering to push the Jewish population to a point of unrecognizable form, wherein Jews were not only perceived as innately toxic to Germany, 
but considered to be something other than human. Boycotting Jewish businesses, the forceful wearing of the yellow star, segregation into ghettos, and characterizing Jews as rats were all forms of othering that perpetuated the dehumanizing discourse around Jews in Jewish life and fed into the fear-mongering, just as the Fuhrer and his henchmen had hoped. And what better environment for a problem like othering to root and fester than where differences are on full display and coercion runs rampant like a school? What would become a schoolyard morning ritual with the raising of the Nazi flag and the customary Nazi salute soon became divisive when God, the only Jewish individual in his class, attempted to follow suit with his classmates. The raising of his hand initiated the snap reaction and verbal confirmation from his own teacher that he, as well as all Jews, did not belong in Nazi Germany. Beck, step forward. Step out of line. Beck, we don't mean you. You're a Jew. With his public renunciation by the leader of his class, the petite German boy would no longer be identified or thought of by his classmates as Gerhard or even God, but by a much more all-encompassing label, the Jew. Something other than what is normal. Whether genuine ignorance to the level of hatred culminating towards the Jews, or a conscious refusal of belief, God's mother and father were surprisingly unalarmed initially, opting to keep him in a school where he was considered a gifted student, and perhaps more importantly, opting to stay firmly planted in the political center. But as God's blatant and purposeful ostracization reached a fever pitch in the summer of 1934, the Becks would have no choice but to arrange themselves on the side of the persecuted Jewish collective. After placing first in a relay race with his classmates, God's mother and aunt watched on with indignation and incredulity, as he was not allowed to take his place at the top of the platform. He would instead be replaced by a non-Jewish substitute from the ranks of students that had gathered to watch. Just as God Beck had harshly crashed into a newly developing reality of social estrangement months ago, Hedwig Beck now experienced the same. The principal of the school, admitting that his hands were tied by the Nazi regime, urged Mother Beck to enroll her son in a different school, one that held more tolerant attitudes towards Jews and Mischlings, and functioned as an unbiased institution. It was then decided God and his sister Margot would be sent to an all-Jewish school. Up until this point in his education, God would describe his developmental experience as mainly influenced by Christianity 
but the shift to an all-Jewish school would placate many of his existing anxieties and catalyze the building and cementation of his identity. Though his time spent attending his new school would be relatively short-lived, this shift would bear the fruit of God's first reciprocated sexual experience, his first relationship, and some might argue his saving grace, an unapologetic embrace of Jewishness, and later, Zionism. While the immensity and intensity of persecution against the Jewish collective and homosexuals gained national popularity with the German public, for most it would be the comfortable and safe choice to move away from or hide certain aspects of their identity. National persecution had the opposite effect on Godbeck. With his immersion of Jewish schooling and tradition, God actively began to invest in his Jewish identity, somewhat to the chagrin of his mother and father. The explosion of both the Hitler Youth and the League of German Girls juxtaposed minority Jewish pride with the bombastic and nationalist Aryan pride of the Third Reich, an obvious strategy created to both gain national support for Hitler, while at the same time othering Jews in an us-versus-them mentality. This menacing strategy made groups of Jewish children and teenagers all the more vulnerable in public to outward expressions of hatred from children and adults. This risk worried Hedwig Beck, but God humbly and confidently embraced the very thing that was being targeted by the Nazis. Similarly, he began to establish relationships with other boys, both sexual and platonic. These included God's first real sexual encounter with his gym teacher, his first real relationship with a picture-perfect boy named Otto, and various sexual escapades with other boys. Due to the financial decline of his immediate family, as well as the inability or refusal of his extended family to help, God's tuition could not be maintained, and he would have to leave the comfortability of his schooling to instead pursue work, though the experience he garnered throughout his time would be carried with him in major ways. He soon found work as an apprentice at Bernhard and Isaac Barakowski, a clothing store in the Wedding District. And as the restrictions on Jews continued to grow and seep into everyday life, God became intimately involved with a local Zionist group. As defined by the Jewish Virtual Library, Zionism is the national movement for the return of the Jewish people to their homeland and the resumption of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. This group of devout Jewish individuals supplemented God's longing for communal and social interaction, while simultaneously igniting new purpose and direction for himself. 
the ultimate goal of immigrating to Israel. He would soon come to find out that skills such as focus, dedication, and resilience, ones he embodied in the Zionist movement, were crucial to survive the events that began to unfold in March of 1938. At the end of March of that year, the Becks received an unofficial notice of eviction from their home in order to make room for the expansion of Aryan families. They would then need to find housing that was suitable for a Jew or a Juden house. The segregation of Jewish and Aryan individuals, coupled with the official notice, sent consequential tremors through the Beck household and devastated Heinrich, God's father, who viewed Germany as his homeland. He was now pummeled with the reality that his place of belonging was a farce, openly rejecting and denouncing him and his family. Quickly and thoroughly, God took on the bulk of locating suitable living arrangements for his family, securing them an apartment thought to be fit for Jews to occupy. It would be in that Juden house. God, along with his mother, father, and sister, would experience the unsettling night of November 9th, 1938. Infamously known and somberly memorialized now as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, Nazi officials came in hordes, descended on locations of cultural significance and Jewish-owned businesses to destroy all visual signs of Jewish life and culture. In total, approximately 75 Hundred Jewish-owned businesses, schools, and homes were ravaged and plundered, including Barakowski's, God's place of employment. Over 250 synagogues with priceless Jewish history were set aflame, left to smolder for almost two days. Leaders of the Nazi regime explained this spontaneous eruption of popular anger as a rightful reaction to the news of a foreign German official that had been shot by a 17-year-old boy. But most members of Berlin's Jewish community knew this was no spontaneous occurrence. This historical night displayed the symptoms of Nazi teachings and intolerance unleashing, defaming discourse transferred into violence unbound. It was at Barkowski's where he would recall his most vivid moment of that November night. The elderly salesman I worked with said to me, with grim composure, First, clean everything up. Hang it all back up. That isn't even half of what we had in storage. But it wasn't that easy because the shirts and pants and jackets were all covered with shit. Though others would come to remember Kristallnacht by the thousands of broken windows that littered the streets of Berlin or the 48 hours of violence 
that ultimately killed 91 Jews and deported another 30,000 to concentration camps. Beck, even in his later life, would be assaulted by the olfactory memory, a putrid representation of what incipient anger and persecution rapidly became in Nazi Germany. The night of broken glass created, condoned, and galvanized state-sanctioned repression and violence, ushering in a grim shift that would foreshadow new, unimaginable ways of persecution and eventual annihilation. Each restriction reached new depths of dehumanization and created an impossible situation of peaceful cohabitation between the Jews and Aryan members of Nazi Germany. Purposeful in its design and historic in its horror, Kristallnacht weaponized the already rampant rhetoric engulfing governmental and civilian life throughout Germany, pinpointing differences and focusing on weaponizing those differences. Just as the windows of Jewish businesses, homes, and synagogues were crushed, splintered, and shattered, the Nazi effort hoped to accomplish the same result for the spirit of the Jewish collective. However, what they failed to anticipate to their intolerantly blind rampages was instead of forcing God his family, and the many friends and acquaintances within his social circle into an estrangement of their faith, they would ultimately drive them into a new realignment and reliance on their faith that would change their lives forever. Proving the notion that big agents of change sometimes come in small, unexpected packages. God would soon take the reins of his sexual identity by finding love and embracing his own homosexuality, as well as helping his lover shed himself of shame to be able to love him back. Similarly, his religious identity would flourish and bolster, offering immense clarity for God when things were incredibly convoluted for everyone else. And perhaps most impressive of all would be his unapologetic alliance of both his homosexuality and his Jewishness to resist the spread of Nazi terror, choosing not to fight back from outside his homeland, but to assert his belonging from inside and underground. Root and Branch is produced, written, and researched by me, Caleb Franklin. Music and sound design by Benjamin Dunn. And artistic direction by Lindsay Franklin. Stay tuned to hear how Root and Branch will use an ancient memory technique to help listeners commit survivor stories to their memory.
The circular prayer garden is tense from two sides. Groups of children flank opposite sides of the lined rows of cut grass, while a petite boy occupies everyone's attention at the center. The children to the left are adorned with giant cross necklaces hanging from their necks. They glisten and gleam. Similarly, the children to the right have necklaces of equal size, but the religious symbol instead are shimmering, bright blue diamonds with the Star of David as their emblem. Between the two groups, the small boy is the reason for their fight. His torso has become a knot in the middle of a tug-of-war. Both sides twist and churn to achieve their battle of coercion. When sparks begin to ignite on parts of their rope, Soon those sparks are leaps of flames that lick on the remaining threads, eventually burning through and severing the tie completely. As the ropes snap loose, it is to the side of the Star of David that the tiny boy is ricocheted. He smiles, finding comfort and belonging in the choice that the flames have made. The clock tower is occupied by teens, all bearing the brilliant blue and encrusted stars of David around their necks. The small boy has become quite comfortable here in his new dwellings, but just as soon as he arrived within the confines of the clock tower, he is grabbed and booted by a giant coin, while the windows and even the face of the clock boarded up promptly by sparks from each window's edge. Alone and in front of the clock tower, he starts to sweep and dart his eyes from side to side. Just as his hope subsides to hopelessness, a small man with a giant needle and thread offers him the tools and smiles honestly. He will continue his journey here. All the while, the star around his neck pulses, growing a size each time. The field plays host to the tailor's shop on the left, while a small house with no walls occupies the right. The small boy finishes his sweeping, returns the needle and thread to the shop owner, and begins the field-length walk to his home, where, within the transparency, we have a full view of his mother and father and sister at the table. But just as he reaches the door, his family is thrusted onto the wet grass by the giant flames, which then cover the house in its entirety as the smoke clears and fire clears. What once was their comfortable living space is now a sty. Adorned with the same blue star across where the door would lie, 
They all pile in, uncomfortable. But just like the boy, all members of his family smile and giggle at the absurdity of how close they are now. There is glass falling from the sky. Massive shards are piercing the ground, the stone steps, and the surface of the pond. The small boy exits the front of the sty and begins to run, narrowly avoiding his demise by inches each time. As he looks up to see the source of this torrential terror, flames paint the sky red and he waits for a sign of its ceasing. And just as quickly as the glass began to fall, it ends. The night of broken glass has taken too many casualties to be certain of the number. But stars of David lie scattered across the pond, pierced and alone. And the small boy walks closer to them, leaning his head over the stars one by one. He glimpses a symbol he had not seen before took shape on the glassy reflection. One side pink, one side blue, a star and an upside-down triangle engage with one another, beginning and ending where no one could see, but ultimately intertwined. It's obvious, though still small, his heart and his mind are growing, pulsing larger each second.